If you label him, you negate him or something. Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back, Niebuhr Nation, to another episode of the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, the only podcast that's pushed all its chips in on this Niebuhr guy. We're the only ones doing it, despite Josh Malden thinking about starting a Niebuhr podcast. We're the only ones out here putting in the work, getting the the best names in Niebuhr studies today, keeping Niebuhr's ghost alive. I'm Cliff Bailey. And I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. So answer me this. Have you ever had that nightmare of a conversation where you're talking politics and theology with someone and they're like, I just wish there were a good theologian we could work from rather than just these extremes. Somebody who has a good grasp on both theology and the times, somebody who doesn't settle for cheap platitudes and simplistic solutions. And then you turn around and mention Niebuhr to them and they're like, yeah, but isn't he a realist? And you're like, no. But yeah, kind of, but I don't know. He's a realist, but not like other realists. And they're like, yeah, sure, I'll look into him then. And they say that in a way that you know they're lying and they've already written him off just because he's a realist. Well, our guest today has some things to say about this nightmare of a situation. I think he's going to help us dig through uh, this question a great deal. His name is Matt Anderson, currently PhD student at Oxford University, read for his MST degree at Oxford as well. I came across Matt um, because of this article we'll be reading today, which was published only a few months ago. But I read it and I was like, we got to get this guy on. And we promptly did. So Matt, uh, welcome. Great having you. Hey guys, uh, thank you for having me. So first of all, Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you where'd you grow up? What are you doing now? What kind of research are you doing now? And how did you get into Niebuhr? Yeah, so um, I'm from a city in the north of England called Leeds. Um, I think some of you have heard of it. Um, about three hours north of London, um, up the M1. Um, and yeah, so I, I went to school in Leeds, um, nothing particularly eventful. I was very interested in humanities, literature, and religion my whole life. I did indeed grow up in a um, sort of a, a Christian family. I am um, a Christian myself, and perhaps we can talk a bit about how that influences maybe my reading of Niebuhr as we sure. discuss it further. But um, yeah, when I was 18, I, I moved down south to Oxford University um, to study history at Christchurch College. And I, I didn't intend on staying on and studying a couple more degrees afterwards, but I was so um, engrossed in my studies at Oxford and I had some amazing tutors and professors teaching me at college that I, 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 I was very committed to, to staying on by the end of my three-year undergraduate degree. So yeah, I did my master's degree last year. And as of this month, I'm now a, a PhD candidate at University of Oxford. So great. So congrats, how, yeah. yeah, congrats. Uh, how, how did you how did you first get into Niebuhr? Like, what was your introduction to him? I've been asked that question a million times, so I can probably answer this to you in my sleep. And it's a it's a question that, yeah, it's um, I've thought about this a lot because I can't remember the moment where I first um, heard of Reinhold Niebuhr or 
I, I, I was you know very interested in political philosophy from sort of my 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 um, time at school. Um, and Niebuhr was always a, a figure that I'd been more or less aware of. But I think the first time I read Niebuhr was in the summer between finishing school and coming to Oxford. And it was when I read The Irony of American History. Mm. And um, it completely changed a lot of my ideas about the relationship between my Christian faith and my political convictions. Um, but I never really considered studying sort of Niebuhr at an academic level. I thought, oh, this is a very interesting sort of pamphlet. But I actually took mainly early modern papers at Oxford, and it was only towards the end of my studies I decided to take Niebuhr seriously as a sort of object of scholarly inquiry. So yeah, it, I guess it was sort of 18, 19 years old, and I was sort of reading Niebuhr casually, but it was a couple years after that I started to read him in a scholarly way. And I think the tension between reading Niebuhr casually and scholarly is an important, I think, thing we should maybe discuss, at least in my own intellectual journey. What was that like, uh, by the way? This might get us off on a on a tangent, but um, reading Irony of American History as someone who grew up in the UK, mm. um, it seems like it might be tempting for mm. people who are not American to read that as, yeah, America, you you suck, you know. <laughs> but was it easy to internalize his lessons? I guess for your for your own context. Absolutely. I think the biggest lesson I took from the irony of American history at that age was it was it was a very important challenge to the sort of, we can call it more or less sort of, I, I called it at the time, end of history neoliberal idealism. <laughs> and by that I mean the kind of Blairite third wave brand of politics that was very um, popular when I was a little bit younger, maybe in sort of the early 2000s, so a bit before my political coming of age, but certainly an ideology that was very pervasive in the sort of centre, right of centre discourse in, in, in Britain, particularly in the wake of... Um, Sort of the EU referendum and mm. a lot of the debates about um, the, the nature of international politics and you know should the goal of politics be to build these ideal societies and political communities or should you know and I, I found Niebuhr tempered a lot of the idealism I had <laughs> regarding things like my sort of views on the EU and global government etc. I found Niebuhr was a sort of sobering read yeah. and I realised that there are fundamentals in, in in society and in history that no matter how hard we want to try and change them we can't necessarily change them and. It, often it's 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 better to moderate them. I tell you, it's um, something I was always hesitant was teaching Niebuhr to undergraduates because he's such kind of a theologian's theologian and philosopher's philosopher. He can be, obviously some works like Nature and Destiny Man, he, he can be difficult to teach to undergraduates, but yet at the same time, those are the types of students that need him most Absolutely. to kind of temper that idealism. So that's that's interesting that, I think you and I both came to him probably around the same age, um, much needed uh, temperance. Yeah, I think it was particularly the line in the irony that, that, that always stuck to me. Um, and I can't quite recall where it is, but it was you know, the line he goes, um, one must not attempt to coerce the course of history unto a desired set of ends. Yeah. And that, for me, that, that is one of my favorite ever yeah. lines of Niebuhr. Even, uh, and, and I think, yeah. So, um, Tell me about your methodological training. Um, how are you coming into Niebuhr and how would you say your method is kind of distinct from how, from my understanding, your method is somewhat distinct from how Niebuhr is currently read today? Um, perhaps that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, so I, as an um, undergraduate historian at Oxford, I, I took a lot of papers in, in um, the history of political thought and also the history of theology. Um, and and these, these had mainly early modern Sort of orientations. So I did a lot on the Reformation, a lot on the Enlightenment. And um, methodologically at Oxford, even though <laughs> I guess some of the Oxford dons listening to this may disagree with me, um, we are very influenced by a methodology in intellectual history called the Cambridge School. 
Um, and this is essentially um, sort of challenging narratives that seek to universalize ideas in texts. So, uh, sort of the, the, the emphasis for Cambridge School, more or less, is that there, is, there are no perennial ideas, there are no perennial questions. You can't read a text and superimpose what you believe to be universal concepts on the text and then codify the text from in that way. So, for instance, we shouldn't read Aristotle and think, you know, what was Aristotle's universal conception of justice? We should read Aristotle and sort of ask ourselves what sort of intervention was Aristotle making within, um, you know, second century BC Greek critical thought. Um, so it's essentially reading texts in context. And of course, there are many more specific methodological implications of this, this Cambridge school scene, but the emphasis of my work has more or less been influenced by, by this tradition of history um, founded by, you may have heard of him, the famous Quentin Skinner um, at Cambridge University. Um, and the tradition lives on at Oxford. Um, we, we do do things a little bit differently at Oxford. We're not completely orthodox Skinnerites <laughs> um, at Oxford, but certainly I've been influenced by that mode of approach. So yeah, reading texts in context and recovering the networks of dialogue that these texts were part of. In and that's and reception is a part of that. I mean, you, you bring up reception in this. Um, so you're not just reading for the universalizable, which is in a text, but proof of that which is non-universalizable uh, is the way that different people are reading these original scholars and how that kind of says more about their own times than, than perhaps the original work. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we can approach a text and it happens a lot with Niebuhr, which is what we can talk about realism, that we can assume, oh, because Niebuhr is asso associated to be a realist by realists, he therefore was a realist. And actually that's fundamentally two different questions. And the dissemination of a text and a, the reception of a text aren't necessarily um, yeah, the same thing. Sometimes they are. Ironically, Sometimes. we just talked about this last week with Bart and yeah. uh, Josh, Joshua Molden. He really pointed this out that in his chapter from the Oxford Dictionary of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, that Niebuhr often read Bart based on his followers. So he would like, you know, it, Bart would say, that's not me. Like that, that's, that's these guys who fall in my line of thought. It's not me. You know, and then Aaron had a, had a good question last week about how Niebuhr actually dictated. He was the, one of the first to receive Bart. So the way that Niebuhr read Bart really influenced the way that Americans now read Bart. You know, so that's so. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's I've, I've read some of Joshua's work on that, actually. It's uh, I, so I, 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 I see where you're coming from. And, and absolutely. And, and I think Niebuhr himself is guilty of a lot of this sort of this type of thinking, this sort of universalizing a text. Um, particularly, um, he's, I think he's reading Martin Buber and Abraham Heschel, which is, uh, yeah, actually, I, I think I've misread a lot of Buber because of <laughs> internalizing some of Niebuhr's ideas about Buber. So I, I understand the, the problem that can... Oh, that's interesting. Um, so Matt, just to launch us into our discussion about your article, given the nightmare scenario I outlined previously, where someone writes Niebuhr off just yep. because he's a realist, um, that's happened to me, actually, yep. by the way. What would you say to that person? Um, do, do you want the long answer or the short answer? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever comes to mind, man. Short answer, the short answer is, in my opinion, he was not a realist at all. But I think the yeah. sort of longer answer is that I think Niebuhr, Niebuhr was a political chameleon. And Niebuhr was someone who was, a real, was, 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 was able to sympathize with realist tendencies when he was with realists, like George Kennan, like Hans Morgenthau, because I believe he, he somewhat enjoyed the political influence. Um, and also, I think he, he, he really felt that his ideas had to be received by people who were in power, who would actually change things. He was, you know, this is a big, I think, 
part of Niebuhr's intellectual disposition and personality. He wanted his ideas to work and he was willing yeah. for people to slightly misunderstand the philosophical underpinnings of such an idea to make sure that certain dimensions of his thinking would, would actually affect things on the ground. So could we say um, that Niebuhr kind of himself risked categorization at times, risked um, uh, miscategorization at times because of absolutely. what he was willing to associate, associate yeah, with? During the preface to the irony of American history, the, the, the second preface, he, he writes, I'm not going to elaborate further into the theological underpinnings of this, of this text, well, I'm raising, but, and, and I think that Niebuhr himself made a separation between his, let's say, his policy norms and the theological justifications for those policy norms. And sometimes we can conflate, oh, he said something that could be interpreted in isolation as realistic, but if we look, if we read some of his morphological works, um, that he directly links to these more popular works, we see that actually there's a different reason to why he held that opinion than, than, than Kennan or Morgenthau or Kenneth Thompson, oh. for instance. And actually Kenneth Thompson's critiques of Niebuhr show that there is a lot of divergence between Thompson's realism and Niebuhr's supposed realism, for instance. Absolutely. So, Before we dive in, I actually, I, I wanted to ask another question just to, you know, because we're going to dive into this article. Yeah. I want to know, like, the, what's the narrative behind it? Like, wh when did you suddenly have this realization? Like, was, were you just like, like <laughs> I mean, I... I I actually really relate to like, I'm really glad you wrote this because I, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely remember sitting there thinking like, I, I remember I was writing a history, uh, historical theology paper at Western seminary when, mm. where I went to seminary. And I remember like, I had to like categorize like what was his political views. And I was like, I went to write Christian realism and I was kind of like, uh, uh, I don't like, I don't, he seems like he doesn't really categorize that easily. Like I put it in there. Yeah, so I can remember sitting there struggling with that paper and having that realization. But when was it? When did it hit you? Realize? Yeah, especially the notion. I, just on a side point. Yeah, absolutely. That Christian realist idea. Of, you know, what is Christian realism? It's a problem I still have to this day of defining because it's used so frequently. And I'm looking for a sort of the genealogy and the etymology of it. And yeah, it, it's anyway. But to answer that question, yeah, it's I for me it was. Um, so, so this whole, um, yeah, this sort of unorthodox reading of Niebuhr, I, I felt came about in my, in, in my first big paper on Niebuhr, which was my undergraduate dissertation. And I wasn't really looking at his international political thought at the time, but it morphed into that a bit later. Um, I was looking at his um, sort of his relationship between his neoconservative re reception and his Cold War liberal reception. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's this perennial debate. Schlesinger brings it up in his, you know, one of the last articles he wrote about Niebuhr. You know the famous 2005. Um, yeah, forgetting Reinhold Niebuhr. Yeah, that one. And he 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 talks about this sort of tension in reception between yeah neoconservatives like Irving Kristol and then Cold War liberals like himself. And you know where does Niebuhr sit in this in this paradigm? And I was just, but Schlesinger himself had he was adding to that reception with a a very particular you know reading, um, Niebuhr, reading of Niebuhr for the Iraq War. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this this I a bit on this too actually but um yeah it I, I i actually kind of started reading some more of his theological works and i read the um you know the hebraic and hellenic, hellenic approaches to the problem of selfhood and history and that was one of the first um sort of primary sources i really got got, got my teeth stuck into that was not part of you know the conventional popular neither canon and that um sort of chapter in faith and history it's a chapter in faith and history completely changed my reading of neither um, and I think it's one of the most ignored and essential um, works. And essentially in this, in this sort of short chapter, Niebuhr says that, you know, his thinking cannot be categorized within the conventional isms of Western philosophy. And then he sort of almost 
bit arrogantly says, I'm, I'm a defender of the ancient Hebrew tradition and the ancient Hebrew tradition um, cannot even be um, spoken about with Western philosophical language because it, it it's predicated on metaphysical, epistemological and ontological ideas that, are, that render it a category error. Mm. Um, and so mm. for me, this realist stuff, I think Niebuhr wouldn't, I mean, my reading of Niebuhr would, is that sort of Niebuhr would see realism as a, as a sort of Hellenistic category. And I'm looking at the sort of way in which Niebuhr can be understood as a, what he, he called himself, a Hebraic thinker. How did Niebuhr understand epistemology and how did that transform a way in which we can codify his thought? I think Niebuhr didn't want to be codified. And so all my work has been really based on that sort of observation. That's interesting. So I gotta ask, because of a work like Nature and Destiny, I understand, like, I understand your methodology of kind of presuming there is no universality to here um, when, it, when, it, when you're reading a text. But that's precisely what Niebuhr is, try Niebuhr is trying to, it seems, create a universal dialectic of yeah. human nature in Nature and Destiny. And I wonder if, so you wouldn't say that, that his theology is, is nope. universal, but it's more maybe timeless than this horrible name we've given him as realist. Um, so so my, my, my position about, so, we, you know, so I guess there's two parts to that sort of point. Um, my, so my line about Niebuhr's, um, what I call his ontological position or his you know, theory of human nature is that Niebuhr, Niebuhr's attacking the kind of, what he sees as the, 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 the sort of Western fallacy of human being a rationally isolated individual with a rational mind and a um, sort of impulsive irrational body and he says all of western philosophy is predicated on this flawed assumption of what it means to be human and then he goes into the old testament and says the hebraic conception of self that offers is a far more sophisticated and um you know realistic vision of what it means to be human which is the human being a synergy of mind and body and he emphasizes that you know the hebrew um prophets didn't even have the language that the greek philosophers did to talk mm. about the difference between a rational mind and an irrational body and yes it was an attack on rationalistic man and I guess Niebuhr's saying that, you know, human nature cannot be modeled and rationalized and, and predicted in a very clear and sophisticated way, but what it can be is observed and understood. And this is what the Old Testament does. It doesn't give us a scientific model of what it means to be human. It gives us kind of a dialectic of Imago Dei, right? or like a, the center yeah. or something like that. That's interesting. Um, so let's, let's get into it. So right at the very beginning, um, I'm just going to open this up and whoever wants to question or comment can do so. Uh, you said you basically come out and say that Niebuhr is not a Christian real or he's not a realist. Mm -hmm. And you, you give the argument that the realist is cynical. The realist has a very two dimensional way of seeing the world. In your own words, I guess, what is the difference between what we understand to be political realism and what Niebuhr does? Yeah, so the specific form of realism I was, um, so to speak, attacking in the article was um, IR realism. And the, so it's the very sort of ossified and fixed definition of realism that is a sort of standard in you know, IR theory. Um, and essentially that is a vision of not just human nature and a nation, but international politics that says that the only thing that really we can analyze in politics is power, the only thing that matters is power. And for me, I and 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 in some forms of this realism offers a you know a more systematic explanation of this, talking about how you know 
the nation state therefore has to be the fundamental building block of analysis. You can't use morality, you can't use schemes of justice, it has to be the state. And I just think when I, when I, when I read the certain portions of uh, the nature and destiny of man, for instance, Niebuhr was very critical of this idea of seeing the nation as the center and focal point of analysis of the world, especially when he you know, talks about his symbolic eschatology and how, how he interprets the kind of pride of, the, 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 of Israel in the Old Testament as uh, sort of a, almost a metaphor for how we shouldn't understand the, the world solely from human political perspectives. We should understand that there's, high, there's a higher power, there's a higher force, there's, there's providence that, that makes this world fundamentally a mystery. And I think that this sort of IR theory and realism, it, I didn't think it's compatible with that way of understanding the world. IR theory assumes that we can explain the world, we can explain politics. We've got our theories about power and international relations. I think Niebuhr would, was, would be far more wary to, 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 to look at politics that way. So before we get, even get into reception and stuff like that, I wanna know, like, is there anything just on the face that we could point to and, be, and, and see what a, a realist would see in Niebuhr mm. and you know, maybe want to claim as their own? Sure, so and, and I guess- What's, on, what's yeah. on the front, like looks like a realist to these people? Oh, it's, it's, it's plenty. So you know, his, his, his critique of global government, his, his, his attacks on, on you know, what he saw as you know, the idealism of, of the League of Nations, yeah, and, and there are certainly plenty of remarks you can cherry pick from Niebuhr and say, this is a realist, but I'm, the point is, as you referred to, there's a dialectic to Niebuhr. We have to look at the other side and look at how mm -hmm. he synthesizes the two perspectives. He, for his, you know, and I find and there, there's a subtle difference as well. I wonder if anybody here can mm -hmm. parse this out. There's a subtle difference as well between the political realist or the IR realist um, calls the self-interest of everyone and what Niebuhr would call sin. Mm -hmm what what anybody i mean what what is really the difference between assuming the humans are sinful and assuming that there's always self-interest at the bottom of every decision well just on the top of my head i would think there would be the categorical difference between sin and self-interest would just be a degree to which one is um what's the word i'm looking for the purveyor the 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 cause of it self-interest is yep. more or less someone like doing something but sin is probably something that happens to someone that it overcomes somebody hmm. and just because someone is sinful doesn't mean that all of their acts are self-interest made out of self-interest hmm. depends on the degree of your theological convictions you put on that so can we say that maybe sin presumes a certain freedom of will that yep. the sure. pure self-interest does hmm. not Mm. But it, I, see what you're saying. I guess another point, I think particularly important in Niebuhr's conception of sin relative to, you know, the realist cynical conception of the human condition and power is that Niebuhr always talks about sin in a redemptive way. At least I, I see him that way. Yeah. yeah. And, and Niebuhr's line in, I, I can't, it, I, I, this is in book two of Nature and Destiny of Man. He says, we must not equate the historic with the normative. And this is, this is his critique of Hobbes, where he said right. that just because, you know, humans historically have shown examples of political conduct be, you know them being cynical in political conduct does not mean that we should build a political theory based on that cynicism because that would violate the hebraic spirit of justice that you know underpins our faith and well i was just going to wonder and, and um uh maybe if you want to just jump in here part of your prescription for reading Niebuhr is just having it like reading Niebuhr's metaphysics of like the Hebraic mystery and really? stuff. So when you're, when you ask the question of, well, does sin imply a sort of level of freedom? Are you talking about like a liberal freedom of choice or like the freedom, like that Jesus refers to of like 
the truth set you set you free or like maybe need exception you you kind of just fall into this position of mystery that you can't latch on to anything with a systematic and abstract you know category well i would say that that i would say that self-interest a realist would say is predictable sure we can predict putin's self-interest and and uh and act accordingly According to Niebuhr and uh, his understanding of sinfulness is that we're actually free at the bottom and somewhat in unpredictable. I, I guess it's kind of getting at what Matt is getting at with it, with the mystery of history, which yeah, is a yeah. nice little rhyming. Yeah, but this, 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 this mystery of history idea in Niebuhr, I think he, it's, it's, I didn't talk about it too much in the, um, in the article because just the word limit and whatnot. But I think it's a very important idea he takes from his friend Abraham Heschel. And actually, if you read the, Abraham Heschel's um, prophets, um, and there's a couple of references to Niebuhr, and he and, and Heschel talks about how his vision of yeah the mis- mysterious unknowability of historical um, the historical process was influenced by his yeah his, his dialogue with Niebuhr, and I think Niebuhr is saying that when we try and theorize about politics too systematically, which is what the, the Wilsonian idealists were doing, which is what the classical realists were doing. Um, is that we, we, we he, it's a form of idolatry because it assumes that the human mind has worked out how this world works, how history works, how politics works. And Niebuhr's whole point is that history is um, infinitely complex and it's held together by God's presence in the cosmos. And one of the big parts of that is sin. The, the fact that I remember from reading, Sabella brings this out in his biography of Niebuhr, that if we presume someone is self-interested then then they become somewhat two-dimensional and predictable if we presume someone is sinful we can't always predict what they think is good for themselves Mm -hmm. Um, because even the sinful person who is uh, overcome with pride will often make decisions to their own country's detriment like we're seeing with putin in ukraine Mm -hmm. Um, that you can't count on somebody's self-interest 100 percent of the time because they will hurt Mm -hmm. themselves so how so yeah, so reading man as an animal provides some level of like observation and be able to predict their next moves. Mm. But seeing human beings as spiritual beings provides a level of freedom and transcendence over nature. Da, 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 that's nature, man. So Matt, how is it that people can read Niebuhr then? as just that two-dimensional in terms of politics. Yeah. Well, this goes back to, I guess, we've, it's it, um, one, of, one, of my, one of the most I think, interesting parts of Niebuhr, which is his reception. Mm. I think, so I asked myself that question when I sort of started my master's dissertation, because this was, this was what was really at stake. If I'm claiming Niebuhr was not a realist, why is he understood as one? Um, I think one of the most important texts that got Niebuhr out um, so to sort of the non-theological crowd, to, to sort of political philosophers and to public intellectuals, was was E. H. Carr's um, Twenty Years Crisis. Yeah, I think in in, in E. H. Carr um, did a very good job at extracting the parts of Niebuhr's political theology that gave his sort of amoralistic vision of uh, <laughs> uh, international relations a bit of moral and theological credibility. This was the late 1930s, but we published multiple times in the 40s and 50s, and is still regarded as one of the seminal texts of international relations theory. But it was interesting how Yit Carr, he, he, he took the sort of Niebuhr's critiques of George Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson, um, the architects of the war um, peace settlements, without, but from a very, from, but in those very chapters where he's, he's, he's sort of 
referred to Niebuhr from a moral and immoral society. He ignores the very critiques Niebuhr makes of, 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 of what he calls realist thinking. So I don't want to skip too far ahead, but I, I had a question on that because you yeah. said you have a line where you say um, you basically just say that he he approaches things from a very off theological standpoint. Um, and one of my questions that immediately popped in my head is we had uh, Eli Valentin on our podcast, yep. and he made a really interesting claim that um, that Niebuhr actually at the end of his life reflected on his own political writings and wished that he hadn't he, he hadn't written about foreign policy in terms of in a theological standpoint. And you know, both both I think all of us kind of squirmed at that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. I'm in denial I'm over that personally. I'm claiming that's post-stroke Niebuhr. He didn't know what he was talking about. That, that's what Niebuhr's position was. Do you think, I mean, we were, we were kind of squirming at that, but do you think, I, I mean, obviously you probably don't think, but like, what do you, what do you, what do you make of that? Because it would almost seem like Carr's work would actually be an extension of Niebuhr's and it would be what he would want inevitably where people stripped away the. Sure. Well, it, depends. it depends what Niebuhr we're talking about. Are we talking about Niebuhr who is trying to appeal to a, you know, a political class or are we talking about a Niebuhr who's trying to appeal to people like us? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that's the chameleon dimension of Niebuhr and, and that's something I'm looking a bit more into his, his sort of, I guess it comes out a bit in um, in um, Fox's biography of Niebuhr, this sort of ambition and this desire to to really make a mark in the world. But I think that's a cynical explanation. I think a, a fairer explanation to this sort of comedian-like personality and maybe some comments like that would be his, um, and it's a big part of my work, his, his um, admiration of, or at least his ideal of the, the Hebrew prophets and the way in which he contrasted the ideal of the Hebrew prophet to a Greek philosopher. And... The Niebuhr, this was that Hebrew prophets, they didn't theorize abstract ideas about politics and justice and how we should live together. They thought about how they can practically make people's lives better and how, and part of that is um, issuing judgment over sin. But, they all, but according to Niebuhr, they always offered a solution out of sin, you know, embodied finally in the, in the life of Christ. And, and I feel Niebuhr tried to embody that ethic in his own conduct as, a, as an intellectual and a policymaker but it was about his ideas working and that was his big difference between right. Hebraism and Hellenism is that Hellenism was on its ivory tower it had all these rationalistic theories and you know he it was a big attack he made on Dewey Dewey had all these ideas about how to make America greater than <laughs> but, right. but but none of it worked according to Niebuhr I'm gonna go ahead and make an official motion that we no longer voice Niebuhr's latter day regrets <laughs> in this podcast because <laughs> yeah. I think he was full of it in opposition, I motion the contrary. <laughs> no, but uh, that's good. Now, I appreciate, Matt, your critique um, of of E.H. What's his last name? D.H. Carr. E.H. Carr, isn't it? Yep. E.H. To that I say, uh, sorry, well, bad joke because it's spelled E.H. Uh, I appreciate this critique, but do you think that it might be a little bit unfair to charge a guy like Carr with not reading the the nuances that would come from Niebuhr's canon into his earliest work, which was one of the only ones that he had at the time. He had More Man and More Society, he had Reflections on the End of an Era, and he had um, Interpretation of Christian Ethics in 1939. Oh, he also had Beyond Tragedy, I guess, yeah. too. So I, I think, okay, I can see that. If you add in Beyond Tragedy, then can uh, then E.H. Uh, Carr should have known better. 
Um, I I can I can see that now. When I when I originally read this, I think I, I thought uh, maybe he wasn't exposed to like we are to the whole canon of Niebuhr. Uh, to be able to find those nuances and more man and more society that bring out his theological aspects. And, and the same, the same, the same thing can be said about Canon and Morgenthau, close to him, and especially Morgenthau. That's true. Mm-hmm. Have no appreciation of Niebuhr's theological ideas whatsoever. So, so basically, what we have here is we have kind of a premature um, classification of Niebuhr mm. that ended up sticking. Mm. Um, you you are saying unjustifiably. And I think that's a fantastic argument. And I hope that this gets popularized because I do, we all have that problem of explaining Niebuhr mm-hmm. as a realist and what to do with that uh, really awkward categorization of him. So yeah, I'm, I, I, it's funny how history can do that, but you plop somebody in there to be the, among the first people to receive Niebuhr and they tend to write the history on him. Uh, when you know he's not done yet. Um, you know? Yeah, just on, on that point though, it's a very I think you've got to ask yourself, and we've all got to ask ourselves when we when we hear Niebuhr being categorized as a realist. What is a realist? I mean, I, we, I mean historically, what, what do we mean by realism? Because what realism means to a lot of people who call Niebuhr a realist is that he's part of a universal tradition of political thinking, from um, certainly Augustine. You know, actually, some people even go further and say Thucydides, and we'll say Thucydides, Augustine maybe Hobbes, maybe Nietzsche, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we end up somehow at Morgenthau and Cannon and Niebuhr. And mm-hmm. um, sort of as a historian, as a sort of the way I've been trained and the way, you know, my sort of at least philosophical convictions lie, I'm, I'm skeptical to any sort of master narrative that tries and links all these different disparate thinkers into one ism. I think that I think yeah. one that's a little boring and I think that's a bit naive too. And I think, so what was realism um, really um, in, the, in sort of the mid 20th century in this discursive realm? For me, it was a political language that emerged in sort of the 1930s to counteract Wilsonian idealism. And they called themselves realist. And of course they drew people like E.H. Carr, many others, Herbert Butterfield, they drew from this kind of, what appeared, what appeared to be an ancient canon or ancient tradition um, of realist thinking. Really, they just invented that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think Hobbes ever saw himself as a realist either. <laughs> I often like kind of imagine. I often sit and imagine how if Niebuhr was here today, what what like what books or articles would be writing to just eviscerate those who try to categorize him so neatly? Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Especially well, well, I think that yeah, I think that a tradition that we kind of left out there that really or a, uh, an international context that really, I think ensured that Christian that realism stayed around is the nuclear age and the contrast between the nuclear age which made it difficult for military intervention in like eastern bloc countries or whatever uh, but also at the same time you have this influx of like all this American power now yeah so we are we constantly have to check ourselves against ideologies Mm. Uh, that might propel us into sticky situations. So I don't think that that's historical context has gone away though. So I think Mm -hmm. that that's the reason why we see maybe realism still around and, um, and uh, Niebuhr cast as a realist uh, still is in in vogue. So that's what, yeah, to build on that, I think there's another sort of interesting dimension to, 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 I think the argument that I I quite like to, to make, which is that Niebuhr didn't, believe that you could reduce 
politics to categories, to, 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 to theories. Um, he said that was the fallacy of Hellenistic thinking. And he claimed being a Hebraist, that his way of thinking about politics was fundamentally non-doctrinal. And I think that's a, and, and what is realism? It's a, it's a doctrine of politics. It is a systematic theory of politics, which is supposed to work every time. <laughs> and of course, yeah. no, it doesn't. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that tipped me off that about Obama's mm. uh, Niburian uh, streak in him is that um, not least, of course, when he name drops Niebuhr or he's, he's able to kind of give a rundown of irony of American history on the spot in that Brooks interview. Um, but Niebuhr was often criticized as having no doctrine, no uh, international political foreign policy doctrine. Um, that, uh, and, and that's something that I, I kind of liked about it. Uh, that we all know what the Bush doctrine was, you know, you, you can, and the Clinton doctrine, um, but there was kind of an absence there. And maybe we shouldn't get into Obama's politics on here, but, uh, but I do think that that's an interesting way of approaching foreign policy and pretty rare as well of going into it, not really having a clear doctrine on America's place in the world. So check this out. I think it's interesting to point out, you brought up the part about uh, uh, Hans Morgenthau, how he's a realist. He's basically saying, I'm a realist. And me and Niebuhr, we get we always end up in the same place. But essentially, I don't, Morgenthal says, I don't need all that theological metaphysical mumbo jumbo to get me there. What do you what do you say to that, Matt? Yeah, I I think Morgenthal came to that conclusion because they did agree on uh, the policy of containment. And I think that's where Niebuhr has really been understood as a realist. It's by Cold War liberal scholars who who see Niebuhr as a sort of part of that discursive community. And absolutely. And let's not, you know, I'm I'm very happy to admit that yes, Niebuhr was part of the, you know, the, the sort of famous or some may say infamous, um, you know, conference on political realism hosted by um, Nelson Rockefeller in the 19, mid 1950s with Morgenthau, with Thompson, with all these canonical realist scholars. I'm, you know, sure Niebuhr agreed with Morgenthau on certain principles, but I think that from a theoretical perspective, and certainly from a theological perspective, the big difference between Morgenthau's realism and whatever we want to call <laughs> Niebuhr's vision of international politics is that for Morgenthau and for Kennan, the highest goal of international politics is some form of balance of power, or Morgenthau would call it self-preservation, national self-interest. And Niebuhr said that's idolatrous. He makes the point throughout the nature and destiny of man. He makes a point throughout the irony of American history. Niebuhr said the highest form of, you know, sort of highest moral kind of ideal of politics is not a balance of power. It's, 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 it's what he calls, and he doesn't define it particularly well at times, but he says justice. And, and So you can actually point then, Matt, to a particular theological concept that cannot be found in realism and that would that Niebuhr would distinguish him from that so you got justice um and what and idolatry yeah it's it's pretty clear to me um and I think that's I think that's fascinating because I think that it's interesting to point out that you have some Christians who want to say like Harawasian types who want to say that yeah Niebuhr is just a pragmatist in Christian clothes yeah and then you have Morgenthal here saying basically yeah, he's just a Christian. He's just a pragmatist. He's just a realist in Christian clothes. Yeah. Um, why you need all that Christian clothing? Yes. So they're both kind of saying the same thing. Um, and but it's from what I'm hearing, it sounds like idolatry, justice, uh, hope. Maybe we could throw hope in there. 
These are important facets that his theology actually adds to his and changes um, how he understands uh, international uh, relations. Absolutely. And it's, it's the same critique he makes of Kennan in, in, in its similarity of American history. There's a, there's a, there's a portion where Niebuhr um, talks about Kennan's American diplomacy. And although he praises it for its rejection of the sort of equally idolatrous, pretentious ideal of global government, he likewise is critical of the way in which he presents self-interest as an end in itself. And bear in mind, Niebuhr always saw containment as a temporary alignment. It was not for Niebuhr uh, something that should perpetuate longer than Yeah. Were there realists at the time that saw it as a potential permanent solution? Oh, absolutely. Um, to at a least degree. indefinite. Certainly, yeah. certainly Morgenthau. That was certainly Morgenthau's position and certainly Kenneth Thompson's position. Yeah. And if you read the essays that was it John, John C. Bennett, um, you know, the famous, um, you know, Paul Tillich contributed and, and Schlesinger, you know, the famous Brown book. We all, I, I think all, he was Niebuhr's uh, department chair, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and if you read Kenneth Thompson's article, he's very critical of Niebuhr's, what he calls Niebuhr's idealism, <laughs> actually. Well, I was just going to say, do, do you think that like, you know, as we're kind of talking about this, one of these keeps popping in my head. Yeah. I wonder if some of these one of the things that might distinguish him from realists is that he has, uh, as much as he is, you know, talking about the personal interest of a specific country. And I know often realists do have a globalist view of things, but it almost seems like his view is more uh, humanity-based. Like it's more like absolutely for the benefit of humanity, not for the benefit of the United States. Like ultimately the United States needs to do this, but it's actually in the long run beneficial for everyone. Whereas I think some That's of the real, great. sometimes realists take the approach, they're not really that optimistic. They're more like, what can we do for our own? I mean, I don't know what yeah, you absolutely. mean. And this is, this is the very point he makes in chapter eight of um, book one of Nature and Destiny of Man, where he's looking at um, you know, the way in which Israel understanding their destiny as um, the chosen nation led to sort of proto-nationalism and, and a pretentious understanding of themselves, which is what Isaiah came in and, and judged them for. Mm. It was ah. the idea that it's good for them, was good for everyone. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a really good distinction. That's fascinating. Let's get into the history is mysterious part. Um, mm. to, to get into this, you, you reference Niebuhr um, as, as saying that Christian eschatology, which looks forward to an end of history yeah. in which the condition of, of nature history, nature hyphen history, mm. are transfigured but not annulled, transfigured, but not annulled. What, what does this mean? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still trying to work it out. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think Niebuhr was particularly sure too, but I, I kind of can get, I, I have a sense of what he was up to, what he was, what he was trying to do, what he was trying to convey. And the whole point is meant to be ambiguous. We're all meant to read this and ask the question because Niebuhr doesn't want to come to a conclusion because if he comes to a conclusion, it becomes a theory. And if it becomes a theory, he, he, he becomes a Hellenist. Right. So Niebuhr is, I think, so the context of this remark uh, is Niebuhr is drawing from um, at least his interpretation of Martin Buber, Jewish philosopher, and, and also his, his, who he didn't know so well, but he'd met a couple of times at Columbia University in the 50s when Buber traveled over to America, and Abraham Heschel, who was a very, very close friend, um, family friend of, of Niebuhr and, and the Niebuhrs. And Niebuhr was very skeptical about the sort of, 19th century Western philosophical idea of history having a certain discernible meaning, you know, historicism, the, the teleological thinking that there is a certain thing that holds history together. And once we understand that thing, 
um, like be it you know moral progress, like some idealists or power. Once we understand that one dimension, we can explain all of human history. There's a master narrative, there's a meta narrative that will help us make sense of this. And some Christians, you know, Niebuhr was very critical of um, sort of evangelicals who had this millenarian view, and some many still do that. It's it's the antichrist in this situation that explains the whole of history and we just need to look for this one juncture and everything will make sense Niebuhr said that is idolatrous because history is, is is greater than the individual it's certainly greater than our sense of rational comprehension because it's held together by god and god is fundamentally unknowable that idea of the unknowability of history held together by an unknowable god is what Niebuhr believes he's taking from martin buber i've spoken to buber scholars and they don't think that is the most sophisticated reading of Buber, but it's certainly how Niebuhr read Buber. Interesting. And, and that's also found in a sort of more diluted form in Abraham Heschel. So Niebuhr would say this is the Jewish way of understanding history. Yes, it's meaningful, but, it's, it, but it has a meaning that we'll never be able to fully understand. And what the Bible does, it gives us spiritual metaphors and symbols that make sense of how we can act in that mystery. Not explaining the mystery, but how we act on a day-to-day -day basis. Love, justice, there's judgment for sin, but there's also redemption. Practical things that the theologian the scholar the you know the political philosopher can do to make sense of this world so the best way of making sense is hmm. to to treat history as mysterious and unknowable but that it's quote but within the scripture but held enough, together by yeah but within the scripture there's enough symbolic revelation to teach us how to go about our day-to-day -day lives yes we have some measure of revelation but we don't have the fullness to make these grand and pretentious theories that, that Niebuhr rejected. Really. And maybe this goes back to Niebuhr's understanding of revelation in general, that revelation is something that is, is enough to allow us to change and repent, but not enough to end history, not enough, not enough to bring imminent salvation. Hmm. Um, and maybe this is what he means by uh, transfigure, but not in all. It's capable of changing us. Um, yep. And we have the freedom within history to uh, to make changes and to and to better ourselves, but not without getting rid of the problem. I, I remember that uh, in one of the chapters of Beyond Tragedy, Niebuhr goes on about having restoration without without repentance, um, and how impossible that is. And I and I think that that is maybe bleeding into his understanding of history as well. That we are never arrived in a way that we have completely resolved the problems of history. But it has to come through a certain change through history um, that is never fully complete and only can be completed by in God's good time and God's own providence. Absolutely. I think Niebuhr's big point is there's no such thing as a truly Christian philosophy of history. Mm. There is no, there's nothing in the Bible that gives us a code to say, once we can discern this pattern, we understand how humans relate. We understand how it's all going to end. He said that's all fairy tales and that's hellenism and he said if anything and time and time again when people try to figure out god like job the book of job comes to mind of trying to uh, pin god with kind of this really two-dimensional form of retribution good things happen to good people bad things happen to bad people god comes down and and messes that whole thing up and allows job to have all these a, a good guy to have all these bad things happen to him and then he gives him back double when he didn't deserve double so god is always kind of messing up our formulations you know um of of salvation our formulations of history well and you know i don't remember who it is but um there's there's a philosopher he has the quote that christianity killed itself with the uh, christianity is killing itself with the sword of truth so like it champions truth to the degree that it creates this 
it eventually creates skepticism and doubt and leads to atheism. And sometimes I think that Niebuhr is almost the alternative. He's the other pole of that, right? That in some sense, the, the, there is that onslaught of truth that is continually stirring up and continually kicking up, but it doesn't lead to doubt and skepticism. It just leads to a skepticism towards every, like everything in a sense, but in a positive, constructive way where you're like building upon that. It's not leading to your loss of framework, yeah. but a new framework each time. Yeah, absolutely. But Niebuhr's, sorry to go back to it, but I think it's so important in, in, in my understanding of Niebuhr is that going, going back to it, Niebuhr sees this, this, this narrative between the ancient Greek foundations of our Western intellectual culture and religious culture and the ancient Hebrew foundations. And he, a self-described Hebraist, says, I'm adopting the principles from the ancient Hebrews. And, and the ancient Hebrews didn't try and reduce infinitely complex truth to rationalizable paradigms. The ancient Hebrews didn't try and explain things they knew they weren't supposed to explain. And he, he actually blames a lot of uh, a, a lot a lot of the wrong thinking in his time to this sort of Hellenization of Western of the Western mind, hmm. and it's yeah, it's, a, it's a probably uh, an overstated claim, and, a, and, and but 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 I think it, it tells us a lot about how Niebuhr was thinking and 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 why he was so ambiguous at times. We've come by, um, when it comes to conclusions about yeah, that's um, Paul, Paul Tiller cr criticized <laughs> him for being too Hebrew he, too Hebraic. I think that's probably yeah. the best explanation of his ambiguity that I've ever heard. So I've always been so curious because he is so, in, it's almost like he's, he's, he's so incredibly de deliberately ambiguous. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, but, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, come on, dude, just be specific. Well, how about, how about this one? So this is in the, um, this is in Elizabeth, his, his, his daughter, you know, the, the, the collection, the famous one. And he, a collection of essays edited by his, um, his, his Elizabeth Sifton, his late daughter. And um, if you find the portion called The Problem of Selfhood and History, to the listeners, it's page 856. Um, and this is, I think, the game changer. <laughs> where Niebuhr says, there is no doubt on the other hand about the wholeness of the self in its finiteness and freedom, about the height of that freedom above the limits of formal reason, about the dramatic reality of history and about the distance and relation of God to that drama in the culture of the Hebrews, which furnishes the other component of our Western civilization. So he's attacking every single metaphysical, epistemological and ontological presupposition that he believes the Western philosophical tradition is inherited from Aristotle. And yeah, and, and I think a key point there is that what he calls the dramatic reality of history. History is a drama, not a, not, not, not a, not a teleological sort of train line going like this. It's, it's more of a, he said, the way in which we understand history is not by picking out patterns, which is what mm. Western philosophy tries to do, but it's by looking at moments where we see an encounter between um, two spiritual beings and this is what he takes from Buddha. Oh. Mm. Matt would you consider Niebuhr a proto-postmodernist? <laughs> proto-postmodernist hmm. because he's destroying oh, everything. That's a very good one and it's a very good question. Um, no he's not because he says there is such thing as meaning in history. He says there is such thing as objective truth. It, all Niebuhr said is that there's a difference between our ability to know that meaning and the fact that there is meaning, if that makes sense. Structures that bring us to meaning. Chaos, it's all chaos and it's all, any form of, any system of meaning is arbitrary. So he, he looks like it at times though, because he is subverting and all out, most of the time very hostile toward 
yep. systems that we normally rely upon to but, give us but truth. His, his, but, but, but the framework from which he's doing that, which is, sort of, yeah, it is, an, it is an irony in Niebuhr, and it's a contradiction because he says there's no structures, but he clearly uses a structure. His structure is his interpretation of the Old Testament and the role of the prophets and what he calls Hebraism. So it is a framework. How about, <laughs> could we call him prima? See, I'm, I'm messing I with you now I, because you're here. I call, I call him a Hebraist. I believe he, his okay. objective I mean, like, is this what he, what he idealizes the Jewish conception of ultimate reality to challenge the ancient Greek. I just love that reality. you're coming on here, Matt. We read an article how you don't want to throw this label on Niebuhr, but okay. I'm trying to put a new one on him. Okay? Yeah. I'll, I'll take <laughs> I'm joking. Good. Yeah. I have two thoughts about that, but I, I think I want to add a tagline maybe for when you write your new, when you write your uh, PhD uh, dissertation. So I guess what you're saying is, the question that's usually asked is, what the hell does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? But you're actually asking, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens what, whatsoever? Absolutely. Completely. You're trying to make that distinguish, distinction between Jerusalem. And, and it was, and I, I think this is, and I have to do some more, some, some more sort of archival work on this, but um, Niebuhr has been committed to this sort of Athens and Jerusalem uh, tension in his thinking since 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 his master's thesis at Yale because mm -hmm. that was on the um, the Hebraic and Hellenic conception of the soul in in, in, in Paul's writings. Um, so this might be a, a, a way into critique corner West. <laughs> How's that? Because West is always trying to merge the two between the Socratics of questioning and the prophetic. Well, Niebuhr Niebuhr tries Niebuhr try Nature and Destiny is basically Niebuhr's attempt to find some space for elements of enlightenment to coexist mm -hmm. with Protestantism in a way. So I think that I would love to see a dissertation on or a book on Niebuhr's um, how Niebuhr relates. I guess your question, uh, Jerusalem yeah. and Athens, or how he relates. Protestantism with enlightenment. I think that would be fine. That would get that would get to the bottom of his differences between Niebuhr and Bart, his differences between Niebuhr and Tillich, his differences between um, Niebuhr and uh, the other dude, um, Kierkegaard. Yeah, yeah. But, but Niebuhr just, makes it very makes it very clear that he, he. I think he drew his at least the mature Niebuhr's pri primary theological inspiration not from any of these sort of Hellenistic. Western philosophers, but he drew them from Rosenzweig and Buber. He, he writes that clearly. And he said they had insights that very few Protestants had about what it means to be human, about the dramatic nature of history, about the unknowability of God. If I can just ask real quick, Matt, because um, we're throwing around terms like meaning, what makes history meaningful? Because mm. for, for some postmodern theologians i mean you get yeah. the radical orthodox jk smith is the incarnational like act in history where the yeah. event of christ happens um so yeah for what for what niebuhr for niebuhr what is meaningful for history um i think for niebuhr it's that god exists and god interacts with people love it shown, shown by the bible and yeah i think that's a fantastic question because i a lot of uh, theologians want to ask if niebuhr even believes in a god yeah. Um, but if you look at Niebuhr's writings, what his writings are composed around is this crater at the center, which is the necessity for God, that God has to exist. If God exists, then we can, we have the rebuke of pride. Mm -hmm. We have the prophetic witness. We have mm -hmm. hope. 
all these things then work and if there is a God and a, and a redemptive Christ at the center. And, and this comes to circle now because this is the fundamental reason why I feel yeah. it's untenable to call Niebuhr a realist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because realism is based on a vision of human behavior of a world where there is no place for a God. We're just these cynical, power-hungry, insecure beings yeah. doing anything we can to survive. Now, let and me ask you this though, Matt. That's the world described would, in the Bible. Would, yeah, would uh, placing Christ Christian at the beginning of realist does that do anything for you does that change what he is um you trying to fix your I, I, I think it can, i think i think it's a i think it's a it's a contradiction in terms okay um you're absolutely right it is kind of an oxymoron it depends what the christian realists and this is what i was um, hoping to you know ask you guys about because uh this is this is your <laughs> your sort of stuff um, I think that, yeah, it's interesting, Niebuhr very rarely used that term, I don't think ever, to describe himself. I know there was the collection of essays titled Christian Realism and Political Problems. He didn't give the essay collection that title. Um, well, I think that the way that it's oftentimes used in within the Christian context, so this isn't international relations or anything like that. This is just within the Christian context. I think it emerged with Walter Marshall Horton. Um, I think he was kind of one of the first ones associated yeah. with that name and Niebuhr, like the movement of Christian realism just yeah, became Niebuhr, yeah. which should be a clue in and of itself that it's not really yeah. a thing if just Niebuhr's in it. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I, 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 I absolutely am aware of, yeah, there's a sort of, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an intellectual tribe, we can say in sort of political theology who call themselves Christian realists and have pretty clearly defined way of seeing world. Yeah, but you know, Providence magazine types and, you know, sure um there's no problem calling yourself a christian realist it's certainly a thing it's just to what extent do do the fundamental principles of that movement correspond to what niebuhr was really up to what niebuhr was really thinking and that's what i find interesting well matt i think you're convincing me to take christian realists off my bio (laughs) so it seems like um you know it's really funny because this is a this is an apprehension i've had you know ever since i started reading niebuhr i was just like I read these people who are say they're Christian realists and then I read Niebuhr and I'm just like, I, I just don't like, I mean, I see like, for instance, on the issue of sin, I could really see, you know, they, I could see a similarity in thought, but, but just in terms of like their hope for the future, I just don't, I don't see it. You know what Let I mean? Let me take a stab at this. Let me take a stab at this. Okay. So as, as Matt said earlier, it was within the political realm, political mm-hmm. realism really began in opposition to Wilsonian uh, Americanism. Within Christianity, Christian realism came out in opposition to kind of the blind blind pacifistic uh, social gospelers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it is supposed to be a, uh, a movement that's against that optimism, that has a more sober view of reality. So I think that how people get there is they'll say that it's basically realism, except at its center, disregard self-interest as a predictive motivation and instead put in its place uh, sin. Yeah. And, and it's to observe the totality of relations, church relating to society, um, nations relating to nations, as things actually are, not as we would have them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that is and that is a big distinction and that's something is actually in Niebuhr's serenity prayer but that is a big move of realism in general is to understand the world not in this you know starry-eyed optimistic view of the way that things should be but to see things as they actually are so the 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 infamous critique is against Neville Chamberlain that you know he went in and had those accords with Hitler, got the thing signed, and he believed him. He believed his motivations when he should have been realistic, and he should he should have presumed Hitler's self-interest rather than um, his how he would have liked to have Hitler have uh, responded, and he should have been skeptical of Hitler. That's the realist take. Now, a, a Christian realist might say something similar, but say, we have to come in recognizing the, not necessarily the self-interest, but the sinful nature of Hitler. And that you can arrive at similar conclusions as political real, realism that way. I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think that, yeah, we didn't even bring this up, but I think that the social gospel context is absolutely essential. And I think the kind of, you know, and, and Robin Levin in a lot of his work really gets to this, how yes, absolutely Niebuhr saw idealism going in one direction too far. And of course, yeah, he had believed we had to reintroduce this fundamental idea of sin. And this is where the Augustinian idea of, you know, association of Christian realism comes in and Niebuhr supposedly takes the Augustinian conception of original sin and uses that as his kind of battering ram against, um, you know, liberal Protestantism and modernism, sure. Um, I think the main thing, though, is just simply seeing the world as it is, the realism, seeing the world as it is and not how we would have it. And it's kind of, it kind of implies a theology from below. um, And it implies a certain suspicion about reality that isn't, isn't necessarily contained in our otherwise very idealistic worldviews. Yeah, absolutely. I I just, I think that, yeah, it's just that I think that Niebuhr's, at least the way I read him is that he always maintained that there should be a fundamental ideal that transcends even the sin we see in the world and that's how he sees redemption like we must see the world through a redemptive lens yeah Um, yeah absolutely and that's what would keep him out of the realist camp probably so okay so I I'm I'm buying into it Matt I'm taking it (laughs) off but there's a great big gap here um, for what we should be calling Niebuhr. So I have, I have come up with some new terms. You ready for this, Matt? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest these instead of calling him a realist. I, uh, how about this one? A sober, hopey, changey-ist. Well, uh, I mean, uh, or, sure, sure. I mean, I think that's better than Christian realist. In, How about better than Christian? Christian soberism. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I got more. I got more. Go for it. History's mysteriesism. Yes, okay. that, that that is the best one. But I, 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 I I call him. I I I categorize him as as Hebraic prophetic. Is 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 my. All right. My it's that's a bit no more. Fun. It's not as trendy. Not as trendy. But <laughs> I have I have one more. You want to hear this last one? Go for it. Radical, normal, metaphysical, non-realism, realism. realism. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that would fit on the back of your car as a bumper sticker, so. Try having that in discussion. Then they'd be like, what is that? And then you get to explain to them all of Niebuhr.
<laughs> okay. I like yours. He Hebraic prophet. Uh, Hebraic prophetic. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, that's, that's, how I, that's how I see him, and that's how I hope to hope to present him in the in in, in my next few years of work. Well, we have time for one last question, and I got a doozy. Oh. This is a good one. You got We got to think creatively here. I tested this out on Aaron before we came on. This is for everybody. So I'm springing this on Zach, too. Zach and Matt. Neither one of them know this is coming. Since this is a part of our October interviews that are supposed to be spooky, I want to come up with a completely absurd challenge for us. Here it is. Offer a critique. This goes for each of us. Offer a critique for a classic Halloween monster from a Niburian perspective. Oh, dear. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, go for it. Aaron had a good one, actually. I have two good ones, but you stole my one. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Which one should I do? Should I do the... I was think I was gonna do Frank, uh, Doctor Frankenstein. Oh, Frankenstein's the easiest, dude. Come on. Well, okay. Well, okay. Now Zach says it's the easiest. <laughs> now he's heard it. So I, I I picked Frankenstein's monster because he starts out after being created wanting to find love. So you could probably see him as like some optimistic looking mm -hmm. for something, but then as soon as he sees the tragedies that befall him, he becomes so um, uh, disen disenchanted with. Uh, reality and becomes you know, filled you know, filled with a meaningless and just hateful and is without love. So what would Niebuhr say to him? You're a nihilist. Pick, oh. up, pick up your pants and I, I don't know. <laughs> we just try to explain to him that life is a mystery. <laughs> You're you need to be a Hebraic prophetic thing. I don't know. So I was gonna say Doctor Frankenstein, but Zach, if you think that that's a good one, you can take that. Oh no, I got a different one now. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna say Dr. Frankenstein. It's similar to kind of the Jurassic Park thing of, uh, so my critique would be that they they confused, oh, this is a classic Niebuhr line. They confused the mastery of nature for the, for the mastery of self. That was what I was gonna say. They thought that they could take <laughs> over tech, you know, technology, create this monster, and it'd be like bringing back life from the dead and everything would be great when the monster comes back and eats their face off, right? And that's, and, and the neighboring critique is understand your power, what you can control, what you can't, that type of a thing. Watch a Jurassic Park movie. It's, it's basically the same thing as Frankenstein and it's the same Niburian moral lesson as well. All right, who's up oh, next? Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say that the headless horseman, man. He, he, oh, the story. The story epitomizes man's uh, uh, modern man's uh, tremendous power and its ability to. Uh, I, but I ironically go about things very aimlessly. <laughs> okay. Without much direction, much much bravado, much much uh, fear, but not not much direction. We're we're kind of there's no to... like self awareness with the headless horseman. It's is all, there? It's just all impulse. It's all impulse. Yeah, there you Just go. Give me a head. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you've left me speechless, but I, I will have a think and I will tweet you. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll put it on. <laughs> uh, I, uh, Maybe we I should do a poll as well. Like, yeah. yeah. Let's do a poll on the Twitter. Can yeah. I, uh, I, I wanted to ask one other question just really quick. 
who who's your like so obviously i mean maybe this is just kind of your original thought but i, I imagine you have some influences that are yeah, yes. driving you in this direction and who are oh, they? what are the what, what are their books it's a great question um many influences many many influences um from a methodological perspective uh certainly quentin skinner john pocock Sternal malcolm these are the kind of big figures of intellectual history contextualism um Noel Malcolm wrote a brilliant article quite a while ago now, about 20 years ago now, about um, Hobbesian realism and Hobbesian, you know, how Hobbes has been canonized as an international relations realist. And, and, and really, when we look at Hobbes, particularly the theological underpinnings of Hobbes, we don't get realism at all. Um, and so, so I think that article in particular was, was a big inspiration to how, you know, maybe I can look at Niebuhr through alternative lenses and see how Niebuhr operates um, or as a realist or doesn't. So, yeah, I... I those guys were big. Um, so Quentin Skinner, he 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 he's known as sort of the founder of our our discipline, um, for better or for worse. Um, he's still going now. He's eighty two years old. He's still still teaching, as far as I'm aware. Um, and he he famously wrote an article called um, "Meaning and Understanding in the History of Ideas," late nineteen sixties. But it's still a, um, a highly respected and 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 studied sort of statement of. Uh, of intent for, for what it means to be an intellectual historian, what it means to be a contextualist, why we have to read texts in context and why we have to read um, philosophers in dialogue with other philosophers, not assuming universality when, when none is there. Um, yeah, and, and I guess close to home, I'm, I'm, I'm a very fortunate opportunity to, to get to know um, Samuel Moyne, um, professor of history at Yale. And Certainly, in terms his Carlisle lectures, which which are the annual history of political thought lectures um, at Oxford University, were a big influence on the way I understood the canon of, uh, of Cold War political thinking, and they're a good list, and you can find them on actually the same Oxford Intellectual History blog. But I think the biggest the biggest influence on my my sort of academic work was my um, it's a it's my my uh, my early modern history tutor at Christchurch at my college called um, Sarah Mortimer. And, and she's, uh, yeah, so she taught me most of my undergraduate papers and her big influence on me was making me take from a scholarly perspective, religious ideas seriously. So I, I was very interested in political theory a lot, but she showed me that if we look at the way in which politics relates to religion in, in certain intellectual contexts, we can often get very, very, very creative in different readings of certain texts. So yeah, plenty, those are just a few. No, thank you for sharing that. That's very, very, yeah. very good. Um, well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. We want to thank again, uh, Mr. Matt Anderson, for coming on with us. Uh, really looking forward to your work uh, in the future. Um, we want to thank the listeners again for uh, tuning in. Please be sure to like and subscribe, write us a good review, and follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there. Thank you.